As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that your word may be faithfully preached to the honor of your name and the edification of your church. Help us to receive your word with the humility and the obedience which it deserves. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, as I said earlier, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 2, verse 13. So chapter 2, verse, beginning our reading at verse 13, and then we'll read through verse 17, and that will be our text to think about this morning. Mark chapter 2, um, you'll find that on page one, uh, 1065 of most of our Pew Bibles, uh, between the first two gospel, between the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Mark is the second book of the New Testament. So, Mark chapter two, beginning our reading at verse thirteen, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. He that is Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, we said when we began the the second chapter of Mark that this is a section of Mark's gospel that really is one of conflict. Uh, where we see continuing conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. Uh, They are not going to be happy with how Jesus conducts himself. They see it as undermining their work. And there will be a series of conflicts that happen. And Mark seems to have particularly arranged these series of stories here uh, to tell that story of conflict, to show how the religious authorities are conflicting with Jesus and how these conflicts serve as an opportunity for Jesus to teach more about who he is and about the nature of his kingdom that's coming. And so these conflicts will actually bring into relief certain things about who Jesus is and this kingdom that he comes proclaiming. Uh, That it is not like the kingdom that the the religious authorities of the time envision. Um, It's the kingdom that God has designed. Uh, with its glory uh, to come. And so last week, we thought about the conflict with the scribes and Pharisees that really brought into relief the forgiving mission of Jesus, what it means to have our sins forgiven by the authority of the Son of Man. In this conflict this week, we'll see how this brings into relief the nature of the fellowship of the kingdom of God. Um, We'll learn more about the fellowship of that kingdom that is coming, that Jesus proclaims, and what it means to fellowship with the king in this kingdom. So how do we see that develop in this text? How does it develop in this story? Well, first we see through an unexpected call uh, that comes to Levi. 
Uh, Second, by an unacceptable celebration. Maybe put unacceptable in quotes. An unacceptable celebration as the scribes of the Pharisees see it. And finally, an unmistakable mission that Jesus proclaims as to why he has come into the world. And so that's how I want to think about this passage with you together this morning. An unexpected call, an unacceptable celebration, and an unmistakable mission. Uh, we, we find this text beginning again with Jesus walking beside the sea. Um, we're not told in what connection this has to the story that just came before it. As I said, I think Mark is more interested in, in, in setting these stories in order to show these conflicts that took place. So we don't know when this is in relation to the healing of the paralytic. But we find Jesus, once again, walking beside the sea, walking beside uh, the Sea of Galilee, that lake that he is near in Capernaum. Um, He's walking there again, and we see that he is teaching, and a crowd is following him as he's walking beside the sea. And he sees this man at the tax booth. Uh, We're told he sees Levi at the tax booth. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, maybe more famously known to us elsewhere as Matthew, uh, the author of the first gospel. Um, But he sees him at the tax booth. We should probably think of this maybe as a customs office or a customs station. And he would collect customs. That's what he's doing at this tax booth. Um, This was probably in Capernaum by the sea. And so there's a road that runs north of the sea where commerce would come down the road. And they're by the, the lake, so things would come in off the sea. So it's a perfect place for a customs station to be where you're going to pay duties on anything you're bringing through the town. And so Levi seems to be the tax officer sitting at this customs station as Jesus walks by. Um, and Jesus is walking by beside the sea, and he calls Levi to follow him. And there's a lot in this story that makes us think back to the calling of the first four disciples that we saw in chapter 1. There too, Mark said, Jesus was walking beside the sea. Um, There too, he issued a similar call that he issues to Levi here, follow me. Um, And Levi leaves what he's doing to follow Jesus, just as the other disciples had left all to follow him. And so in in many ways, this is a parallel to how Jesus called all those other disciples. He called them, they left what they were doing, they followed him. So far, very similar. Now, the big difference is in who Levi is as a customs officer. Um, His occupation sets him apart from these other men that Jesus called in that this was one of the most despised kind of people in their society. Um, Levi was a tax collector. Now, I don't know that there's any society in which a tax collector is well thought of. Um, but, you know, this, this customs officer that he's thought that he's doing back then uh, was a particularly the kind of thing that people looked down on. For one, he was collecting this custom for Herod Antipas, the Gentile ruler of the region, the very unpopular ruler. So, for one, it's kind of seen as an unpatriotic act to be in the service of this ruler. Um, One commentator said, such officials were detested everywhere and were classed as the vilest men. Uh, Sometimes when rabbis listed, you know, gross sinners, they would say, you know, murderers, robbers, and tax collectors. They would all sort of be put in this same category as being really wicked people. Not just because of who they worked for, they were thought of as being sort of traitors to their own people, but because there was no set customs duty. So it just depended on who's sitting in the tax booth 
when you bring in your goods, how much he might charge you. Um, And he's charging not only for the person he's working for, but for himself. And because you never really knew what he might charge you, um, they could charge you exorbitant rates for the duties as you came in, and you really had no choice but to pay it, and you knew they were just profiting off of you. Um, And so that's what led to them being very despised as well. And so we have to see this not just as a similar act of Jesus calling another disciple, as he did in the first chapter. This is a really, as one person put it, a daringly provocative act. Jesus is going along beside the sea with this whole crowd of people following him. He's teaching them about the nature of the kingdom. And then he calls in this very public way one of the most kinds of despised people to be his particular follower. It would have been a very public, very provocative kind of thing to do. Um, You know, his other disciples might have said, is this really the kind of guy we want joining our group? Um, Even if you think he's a great guy, the crowd will hate him. It was likely common people would have seen this as sort of a very unpatriotic act to befriend someone like this. What is the crowd going to think of this? What are the people going to think of this, that this kind of person is going to be amongst your followers? Um, And if there was any doubt about what the people would have thought of him, certainly we know what the religious leaders thought of such people. They would have nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them at all. That becomes clear as our story goes on. Um, So we know who Levi would have been to the people, We know who Levi would have been to the religious leaders. But who is Levi to Jesus? Isn't that the most important question? Who is Levi to Jesus? Levi is someone that when Jesus came and said, follow me, left all and followed him. And again, I think the context is important. Jesus doesn't just come passing along. He comes passing along teaching. And what was Jesus teaching? Well, Mark 1.15 tells us what Jesus has been teaching. I've repeated to you what Jesus has been teaching. My hope is that by the end of this series, you'll all have memorized just by inundation um, what Jesus would go around teaching. What did Mark say is the nature of what he's always teaching? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes trying to make people fit and qualified to enjoy the glories of that kingdom that's coming. That's what he's always teaching. And so for him to then turn to Levi in the midst of this teaching and say, follow me, and for Levi to drop all and follow him is akin to Levi repenting and believing. It's akin to him following. Who is Levi to Jesus? He's one who heard his word and followed. He's one who heard his word and obeyed and came after Jesus. We have no idea what kind of life Levi led. Mark leaves that out. We don't know if he was one of the more honest tax collectors. We don't know if he was one of the most brutally crooked tax collectors in the region. But what was important to know about Levi? It's this. That when Jesus called, he followed. And when he followed whatever he was before that, when he followed, he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Levi was, the most important thing about him is not that he's a tax collector. 
It's not even that he's Matthew, the author of the first gospel. The most important thing you can say about him is that when Jesus called, he followed. He heard the word of his Lord and he responded to his call. And the minute he did that, whatever else he was, the most important thing you could have said about him now is that he's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, isn't that the most important thing that can be said of us? Isn't that the most important thing in the world, what Jesus thinks of us? Um, Have you heard his word? Have you responded to his call? When Jesus says, repent and believe, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned away from them and turned towards God? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted to him alone for your salvation? Then whoever else you are, or whatever else you've been, you are now a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. That's what identifies you in the world. And however else the world may see you, that's how Jesus sees you. And if that's how Jesus sees you, what else matters? Um, That's what we're told about Levi. He heard the word and he responded to the call. And all of those who hear the word and respond to the call are the same. We're all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all come to him on the same terms as sinners needing a savior. And everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith finds the same salvation and becomes the same person in the kingdom of God, a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was coming to do. That's the radical nature of his call. It's that anyone can be qualified for sharing in the glories of the kingdom of God by repentance and faith. It doesn't matter who you are. You're called. And if you hear the call, you're a disciple. It doesn't matter what else is true of you. It's a radical call and it produces radical results. Um, And that's what the Pharisees couldn't see when it came to Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's a radical call that produces radical results and it was pictured there for them in the dinner that was held at Levi's house, but they missed it. They looked at it, the religious leaders looked at it and just saw an unacceptable celebration. That was how they looked at these things. Because the story turns from the call of Levi then to this dinner that's at Levi's house. It goes from his tax booth to his house. That's what's happening in verse 15. Um, You know, the the pronouns maybe make it difficult to follow, but I think in verse 15, it's as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, The the scene moves from the tax booth to Levi's house, and all these people are gathered together um, at this table with Jesus. And Mark tells us who is here, and he tells us what kind of table this is. Uh, Who is here at this table? We're just told that there are sinners and tax collectors there. Um, Now, we already talked about what tax collectors represented to society. Uh, They were outcasts. They were the kind of people that no one would associate with. Um, They were the kind of people who, just to be a tax collector, had grave consequences in the community. 
One commentator said when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He couldn't be a judge or a witness in a court proceeding. He was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. Now, people might have seen Alphaeus walking down the street and said, poor Alphaeus, his son turned out to be a tax collector. Um, that's how they, they were regarded, as outcasts from society. People who no self-respecting religious Jew would associate with. And the same was true of sinners. Um, some people have suggested the, the best kind of way to think about sinners is non-observant Jews. Um, I'm not sure that's quite as helpful as just saying they were not as concerned with the pharisaical laws as some other people were. Um, they weren't as concerned with going through all of the, the, the things that the Pharisees were teaching and doing and that sort of polite society would have observed. Um, and so they were kind of known, sort of dismissed as people of the land, the kind of inconsequential people who just couldn't be trusted to apply themselves to being concerned with their religion. Uh, couldn't be concerned enough to engage in washings and do all the things that the Pharisees thought were important. And so they were sort of dismissed. They too were outcasts in society. Um, they were the kind of people that no self-respecting Jew who was concerned with keeping the law would associate with. So to describe a crowd at this table as tax collectors and sinners is to describe a motley crew of outcasts as a society would have regarded them. The kind of people you don't invite over to dinner. And, the certain, and certainly the people, if they invite you, you say no. Um, that's, that's the group that is gathered here um, at Levi's table. So were there tax collectors and sinners, a despised, outcast, outcast class of people. But how else does, math, does Mark describe these people? Not just as tax collectors and sinners, but there were tax collectors and sinners who followed him. You notice that in verse 15? And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. These are, again, not just tax collectors and sinners. These are tax collectors and sinners who followed him. It's the same word that he used when he said to Levi, follow me. And it's the same word Mark used when he says, Levi followed him. And he uses it again for the tax collectors and sinners here and says there were many who followed him. And I think that's meant to convey that same enthusiasm for following Jesus that Levi showed by dropping everything to follow him. Here is not just Levi the host who dropped everything to follow Jesus as a disciple, but here are many other despised, outcast members of society who also are following Jesus. So again, who is here? How do we want to describe this celebration? It's a celebration of Jesus with his disciples. Some of whom happen to have been tax collectors and sinners. But at a fundamental level, here is Jesus at a party with those who have followed him. And the reason I say party is because they are all reclining at table together. 
that tells us something about what kind of table this is. Now, probably we've all heard that this was kind of their custom sometimes to eat on couches the way kind of the Romans did it. And maybe lots of us have thought about couches at the dinner table not being such a bad idea um, that we might want to incorporate. It'll just cut out the middleman. You could just fall asleep right there um, instead of having to move over to the chair. Um, but what, what is, so reclining at table. So is that just the tradition? Is Mark just giving us an empty fact? Well, Mark is so concise throughout the rest of his gospel, he's not big on empty facts, right? He's not big on conveying a lot of unnecessary information. Um, he, he's, he conveys sort of it's a bare-bones narrative. So what he says is really worth pondering. And when he says they're reclining at table, that really was a way of saying this is a certain kind of table, right? It's like if you walked into someone's house and you saw the table set with the fine china, and the good silver, and the crystal glassware, and linen napkins, and linen tablecloths. You would say, okay, someone's about to have a party. Someone's about to have a, a, a proper meal here, right? This is going to be an occasion. We might even say that, right, if we saw that. What's the occasion? Um, what we're meant to see here is that Levi is... is rolling out the red carpet for everyone. This is, a, this is not just an ordinary, everyday meal. This is a festival occasion. This is a dinner party. And even though it's really Levi's house and Levi is acting as host, as Mark sets it up in verse 15, it really is Jesus who's pictured as the host. Right? He takes the lead in that description. And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, so Levi might have been hosting, but... But who is really the host of this party? Who is really the host of this celebration? It's Jesus. And what is happening here? This is a festive celebration with Jesus and those who follow him. Tax collectors and sinners, but disciples. Followers. Jesus and his followers sitting down to have a festive meal, a celebration together. It's a wonderful picture And of course, as the Pharisees often have to do in the Bible, they come to reign on the parade. And to say, a celebration, this is unacceptable. You can't eat with people like this. You can't set out all that finery and then invite these kind of people. They have no place here and you have no place among them. Um, For them, it was a question of, you know, purity and defilement. You know, these people don't keep the law. You have no idea where they've been, who they've associated with. They could be all kinds of unclean. You have no idea if they've been careful about how they've prepared their food. They come in and they don't wash their hands in that ceremonial kind of way. It could be the wrong people, the wrong food, the wrong place, the wrong custom. You could be dealing with all kinds of impurity and defilement going to a place like this. And if that's not bad enough... You can also be sort of, it's a question not just of purity, but also of identity. You want to identify with these people? To sit down and eat with people is to identify with them. You sort of became guilty by association, by even sitting down and eating with them. And for then the scribes of the the Pharisees, who were in particular in charge with making sure that people observed the laws as they saw them, They would say, you know, this really is a question then of authority. What kind of teacher of the law is Jesus if he's willing to do this? No teacher of the law would do something like this. 
Now, their comment in verse 16 is really kind of an outraged sort of question. Directed, you notice, not to Jesus, but to his disciples. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why? This is unacceptable to be with people like this. And it's the perfect opportunity when they raise this question for Jesus to explain why he's come. So that his unmistakable mission in the world can be clearly understood. And Jesus lays that out for them very simply with a proverb, with a purpose statement in the context of this picture. How does he teach them about his unmistakable mission? First through a proverb. How can a teacher of the law be with sinners? Well, Jesus said, it's sort of like saying, how can a doctor be with sick people? Right? He says a proverb that no one could really take issue with. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. No one stops a doctor in a hospital and says, what are you doing here? The doctor would say, well, the sick people are here. That's why I'm here. Maybe you're one of the sick people. Maybe we need to see you about something. Right? I mean, it's, it's obvious. If the doctors need to be with sick people. Um, and Jesus says, what better place for a teacher of the law to be than with sinners? And that's when he shares the purpose for which he's coming. For which he's coming to the world. I came not to call the righteous, but Sinners. Those are the people who need me. Just like sick people need physicians to make them well, what do sinners need? A savior to save them from their sins. And Jesus is clear, that's why he's come. And what has been so wonderful about as he's developed this this theology for them, as through these conflicts are beginning to make clear, Jesus has come to forgive sinners that they might have fellowship with him. Right? That's what the picture of this meal shows. Right? Just as the last picture we saw wanted to preach clearly the forgiveness of sins that Christ declares by his own authority that he makes it true. This this adds to, fills out the picture of that kingdom because why does God come to forgive sinners? To reconcile them to himself so that they might have fellowship with him. And you see why the purpose of Christ's coming is perfectly illustrated in this picture of celebration. Because the the Pharisees in their sadly exclusive religion say, righteous people stay with righteous people and sinners stay with sinners and there's no crossing over of those two. If the sinners want to become righteous, they've got to do the work to make themselves righteous. But as a righteous person, the Pharisee would say, I'm not going to them. And here is Jesus saying, that's entirely wrong. And he comes as the righteous one, the only righteous one. And where does he go? To sinners. To call sinners to repent and to believe and to follow him. And what does he tell those sinners? If you repent and believe, 
your sins will be forgiven you. And you will have eternal life. And what's more, not only will you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you will have fellowship with me forever. That's what the picture of this celebration was. It was a perfect picture of the celebration that Jesus is going to have with his, all of his disciples at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a reason that God had used in former generations pictures of a rich feast to picture that reconciliation and fellowship that his people would enjoy one day with him. It's another example of how the scribes and Pharisees had so much expert knowledge of the Bible and so little ability to rightly apply it. Because what had Isaiah said about the nature of the kingdom that was coming and what it would look like? Um, Listen to these words from Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God had said there was going to be a time, there was going to be a meal served for all peoples where the reproach of his people would be taken away. It was going to be a meal for outcasts. It was going to be a meal for the despised, for sinners, where he will roll away the reproach of that former identity. And what will that people all say together? This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And here is their God. Come down to tax collectors, sinners, outcasts, the despised. And he said, come and eat with me. Come to the party. Come to the party that I've prepared, that I want you to enjoy with me. And the amazing thing is, not that we would want to be at that party, but that he would want us to be there. That I want to be at that table is no surprise. That he wants me at that table is a love and a glory and a grace that I can't fathom. That's the glory of who the Lord is. He comes as host and invites these kind of people and makes the way so that those kind of people can come to him by his spirit on account of his grace and enjoy that celebration. And the Holy Spirit continues to use those metaphors of meals to talk about the fellowship with God. What did Jesus promise in Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. Fellowship, right? In Revelation 19, the great promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are all those who are invited. Who's doing the inviting? It's the Lord. 
And why is he doing the inviting? Because he wants the fellowship with his people. That's one of the glories we learn about the kingdom of God, that Jesus as king wants us there. That's why he saved our souls to bring us in, because he wants us there to enjoy the glories of that kingdom. One of his, one of his last prayers is recorded in scripture for us in John 17 before he went to his cross. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I desire that they would be with me. That they would see my glory. You see how important it is for us to meditate on this picture of Jesus with his disciples. How sad it was that the Pharisees saw it and all they could say was unacceptable. Well, they should have looked at it and said, what glory the righteous one come to have fellowship with sinners and outcasts and the despised. To turn these outcast sinners into redeemed disciples. So they might enjoy the fellowship of the kingdom that's coming. That's the kind of God we serve. And for all of us who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, no matter what outcast identity you brought to him, after you follow him, you are his disciples who are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And one day soon, just as Levi as the other outcast did in Capernaum, we will sit down to a table where Christ is host and where all his disciples are welcomed and we enjoy with him that marriage supper of the Lamb, that eternal celebration that knows no end. May we all repent and believe and find the Lord Jesus Christ so that all of us will be together, outcast together at that table, enjoying that glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for a Savior like Jesus Christ who does not just come to save sinners from their sins but saves them for fellowship with himself. Again, it's a glory beyond our ability to comprehend that the Lord Jesus Christ would want to associate with us. That He is not ashamed to be called our brother. Um, we cannot see how that could be the case when we think about our own sins and how they have made a separation between us and you. But we thank you for the Savior who came to offer himself on the cross to reconcile sinners to you. And who continues to preach that message of reconciliation that all might find him and find not only forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but an eternity of joyful fellowship with the Son of God. And so, Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to save sinners. We pray that all, all of us as sinners here would find him and find life in his name through repentance and faith. 